and Jewish Voice for Peace. As basic as the roof over your head. As basic as food. This essential is new. The Trump Effect at Schools. Welcome to Deadline LA. This is Howard Bloom going solo today, and we're going to look at the so-called Trump Effect on schools. Has there been an increase in bullying, and can it possibly be traced to the example set in the Oval Office? And we're also going to look at the related phenomenon of having the bully-in-chief, if you will, portray himself as the victim-in-chief. With us today by phone is Jill Barche, a contributing editor to the Heckinger Report, which covers innovation and inequality in education. And Jill Barche also, in the past, was the New York Bureau Chief for Marketplace, a national business show on public radio, and she's written for Congressional Quarterly, The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, and The Financial Times. Jill, welcome to Deadline LA. Thank you for having me. You have written that there is early evidence of a Trump effect on bullying in schools. And here we thought that the kids of today don't pay attention to the news. Tell us what researchers have found. The researchers surveyed all the 7th and 8th graders in the state of Virginia over the course of a number of years, before and after the election. And what they found was that bullying increased in the middle schools that were located in districts that voted for Trump. And it actually decreased a little bit in districts that had voted for Hillary Clinton. How much of an increase or a decrease was there? Was this a significant effect? It was significant. They found in surveying over 150,000 students throughout all the regions in the state that bullying was 18% higher in the Trump districts than the Clinton districts, and teasing was 9% higher, teasing um, about someone's race. And they'd been essentially doing the same kind of survey before and after. Exactly. Every two years, beginning in 2013, all the middle schoolers in the state were surveyed. All right, and this was in Virginia, this particular study. It's a battleground state that actually went for Clinton. It was a 49.8% for Clinton and 44.4% for Donald Trump, and so it was a good state to do the study in. And within the state, even though it was a very close call, there were certainly areas that were either strongly pro-Trump or strongly Clinton. Exactly. You get to Appalachia, there could be some very strong pro-Trump districts. And as you get closer to Washington, D.C., some very strong Clinton districts. Well, I'd now like to bring in our second guest. With us in studio today is David Lehrer. He's president of Community Advocates, a Los Angeles-based human relations organization. His essays have appeared in various publications, including the Los Angeles Times. David Lehrer, before we get to some of your writings, what is your off-the-cuff initial reaction to what Jill Barche is saying about the apparent increase in bullying that coincides with support for Donald Trump? It's not surprising in the least. I'm not sure that the sample is really an impressive one, but nevertheless, I have no doubt of the corrosive effect of the Trump rhetoric, of the targeting of minorities, everything he's been talking about since the moment he walked down that escalator in Trump Tower and targeted Latinos. That has to have a deleterious effect on how people view each other. And this is one of the first evidences of the impact, assuming it's an accurate study. And I'm not a methodological logical person. This kind of seeps down, and here we see the fruits of what his attitudes have wrought. Now, I want to go back to Jill Barche of the Heckinger Report. Is it possible that we're paying more attention to bullying than the past, and that's why we notice more of it? 
I think we are paying more attention. When you look at rates of bullying, a lot of people are seeing nationally an increase in bullying over the years, and, and maybe that is because we pay attention to it more. But I don't think you would notice this disparity. Like, why would people be paying attention to it more in a Trump district than a Clinton district? And particularly, why would students say they had been physically bullied multiple times? Why would they report that more in a Trump district than a Clinton district? No, it's a good point. And apparently there's some debate over whether overall in the nation there's an increase in bullying. I guess you were saying that it looks like, at least in this study, in this one study, it was a bit of a wash. There was more bullying in some areas and maybe less in others. You always have a situation in school where there will be people engaged in bullying, but one wonders if the type of bullying is different. I mean, if the person who was tempted to be a bully is the president telling them who the target is. I I just wonder about that. And David Lehrer, what do you think about that? Do you feel that there's a redirection or a direction of the bullying? I don't know that it's the direction of the bullying. I think it's the notion that you can target people because of who they are or who they appear to be, which is Trump's modus operandi from targeting Latinos, Muslims, handicapped people. It's suddenly that stricture that if you wanted the political correctness, which we've developed over the several decades of teaching about tolerance and teaching about diversity, is being eroded by the president of the United States, who sets an example that it's okay to pick on this group or that group and to use their visible characteristics as a reason to disparage them. Logic tells you that if the President of the United States sets that example, it's going to have an impact. And my notion is, and I don't have a whole lot of data, there are a few reports on hate crimes increasing and so on. I don't know that people have become more bigoted. I think the bigots have become more brazen. And they feel empowered to express their views and their, the constraints that held them back for a long time, for the past several decades, have been loosened. Feel- when I talk to experts in bullying, they echoed exactly what Mr. Lehrer just said, that it's not that Trump is creating bullies, is that there are already people who have anti-immigrant sentiments, and what Trump is doing is giving voice to air those sentiments out loud. Exactly. It's very interesting. And by the way, I should mention that David Lehrer has a a particular experience in this area because for something like 25 years, he was the head of the local Anti-Defamation League, so he knows where Avi speaks. You know, norms do matter here, I guess, is part of the point you're both making, and that if somebody has a bigoted attitude and they keep it to themselves and they don't express that in words or actions, that's actually not so bad in a certain way. Exactly. And we are losing some of those norms which actually had been progressing, perhaps. Uh, David, you want to speak to that? I mean, there are countless studies, most of them the really excellent ones by Pew, over decades, which showed the increase in tolerance and diversity and acceptance of differences. I happen to know a lot about the ones vis-a-vis anti-Semitism. You can go from 35, 40 years ago, where a third of the American public harbored anti-Semitic stereotypes of a particularly pernicious type, and to watch those just fall by the wayside, where you got down to 10, 11% a few years ago in terms of anti-Semitic prejudices. So we were all moving in the right direction, and I would bet that not only has that stopped, it's probably been moving in the wrong direction, which some data seems to suggest, just because the example is so pernicious. Now, Jill, you spoke to school superintendents, and they noted an increase in students being mean and intentionally cruel, especially to immigrants. Would you talk about that a little bit? 
So I spoke with people who are anti-bullying and anti-school violence experts who have a lot of professional contact with superintendents. And what they told me is that superintendents are reporting that they're seeing an increase in students being intentionally mean and cruel, especially to immigrants. And they've never seen this before, this kind of behavior in the schoolyard or in the hallways in the classroom. So the surveys took place both before and after Trump was elected to office. The state of Virginia, like many states around the country, gives out a school climate survey that parents, teachers, and students fill out. For middle school students, it began in 2013, and every two years, again in 2015 and 2017, middle schoolers, that 7th and 8th graders that represent all the regions around Virginia, fill it out, and they're asked. Do you feel like bullying is a problem at this school? Have you bullied? Have you been bullied? Have you been physically bullied? And they define bullying as the repeated use of one's strength or popularity to injure, threaten, or embarrass another person on purpose. It can be physical, verbal, or social, and it's got to be repeated. And it can't be of two students who are the same in strength or popularity. The idea is that it's between two kids of unequal power. And then students mark, you know, has this has never happened to me. This is more than once per week. And the researchers tallied it all up. And then they mapped it with the election results in 2016 and looked if there was any association between these bullying rates that students reported and how their communities voted in the 2016 presidential election. They found that the bullying in the Trump districts was 18% higher than in the Clinton districts, and teasing was 9% higher in the Trump districts than the Clinton districts. All right, and I just want to remind our listeners, that was Jill Barche. She is a contributing editor with the Heckinger Report. And our other guest is David Lehrer of Community Advocates, and he also is a longtime head of the local Anti-Defamation League. And you are tuned in to Deadline LA on KPFK 90.7 FM Los Angeles, 98.7 FM Santa Barbara, and other stations in the Pacific Network. I'm Howard Bloom going solo today, and we're talking about the Trump effect on bullying and digging into that a little deeper. And as Jill Barche just explained, it turns out that in a study in Virginia, there was an increase of bullying in in areas that voted for Donald Trump in the 2016 election. She also spoke to experts who noticed an increase in a certain type of bullying directed towards immigrants. And David was talking about whether there are more bigots than before. That's hard to say, but they seem more empowered to express themselves. Now, David, uh, you've written that President Trump is dangerous to the security of minority groups, including members of the Jewish community. And that's especially interesting, given that President Donald Trump presents himself as a big supporter of Israel. Would you kind of uh, explain that? Yeah, those are two separate issues, number one. Uh, Whether or not he supports Israel, he's certainly taken positions that some in the Jewish community perceive as being supportive of Israel. My notion is that that could change on a dime depending on how he perceives the political winds blowing and when he proposes his so-called peace proposal. But the second issue, which I think is transcendent, is his corrosion and erosion of norms that keep Jews and other minority groups in this country safe, whether it's the civility and how we engage in our discourse, whether it's the use of logic or, in his case, illogic to make political points, his abandonment of reason – 
I mean, you can go day by day. The report on the deaths in Puerto Rico were concocted by the Democrats to make him look bad. I mean, there's nothing there except his notion of reality, which is distorted. Well, let's go to that, because you've also written that the most insidious, and I'm here, I'm quoting here, the, the most insidious aspect of Trump and Trumpism may be his pervasive attitude of being a victim. Someone else is always to blame for what goes wrong. Tie this into yes, your argument. I mean, the way it works generally is if you perceive yourself as a victim, as you portray yourself as a victim, you are empowered to act in nasty ways, in uncivil ways, because you're responding to unfair criticism, unfair taunting, unfair whatever, which is how victimhood becomes a protective shield, like the old Gardol commercials. You can say whatever you want because you've been attacked first. And that's exactly how he operates, which kind of refers to Jill's point of the superintendents talking about kids being cruel and mean. Well, Trump is by definition cruel and mean from way before he became a candidate. If you watch some of those early debates, he picked on his competitors in the Republican primaries in a particularly nasty and cruel way, and he's done it since he's been president. His disparagement of those who with whom he differs isn't just about the substance of issues. It's invariably personal. It's ad hominem. And there's an always, almost always a nasty undertone. It'd be a miracle if it didn't have an impact on the body politic and on young people saying, geez, if, if the president of the United States can talk that way about people he disagrees with, why die? So that was David Lehrer, president of Community Advocates, a Los Angeles-based human relations organization. I want to go back to Jill Barche of the Heckinger Report, who's written about research suggesting a Trump effect related to an increase in bullying at school. What's your reaction to what David Lehrer is saying? Well, I was just thinking about how President Trump often sees himself as treated unfairly and a victim. And in school bullying research, often bullies see themselves that way, that they've been treated unfairly or they've been somewhere on the bullying chain where they've been bullied by some kids and then they in turn bully others. Well, it may be true in so those cases. So you can kind of translate it to the schoolyard. So. Yeah, being a victim is empowering to the purported victim because they are now exempted from the normal rules because they've been treated unjustly. And that's exactly how he operates, and that's the example that he sets. Like, I've been screwed, so I can go screw somebody else. It's insidious. Right. Although in his case, a guy who was born on third base and thought he hit a triple, it's questionable how much of a victim he is. He's not a victim. I mean, if you look at his rhetoric, if you look at his claims, it is invariably someone has done something unfair to him. His comments a couple days ago, every country in the world is screwing us on trade in every aspect of his uh, of his public persona. And I have no idea what he's like personally, but on the public persona, it's about being treated unfairly. The Democrats are doing this to him minorities are doing this to him you just go down the list of those who have targeted him and he's just a poor victim that because he's a victim he can go and act in in any way he chooses so i I recently wrote about an episode at a football game and i I want to recount this briefly so i can get your thoughts the players on one side were from an almost all latino low-income urban school in santa Ana. the other school was diverse but higher income and majority white The two schools were about 20 miles away from each other in Orange County. Students from the majority white school where the game was being held were chanting USA after their team scored a touchdown as though they were from the USA and the other team wasn't. And there was also a sign displayed saying, we're going to trump you. 
Now, whatever else happened in the stands is in dispute, but that much has been confirmed beyond a doubt. And I got a lot of email after that story, and some of it was downright hateful, and we could talk about that. But there are also some reasonably civil folks who argued, well, what's wrong with patriotism? And no one intended to hurt anyone's feelings, so what's the problem? Or people need to be less sensitive and have a sense of humor or just toughen up. And I'm just wondering, what are your thoughts? Well, it's exactly echoing what the bullying experts have been seeing, this sort of testosterone-drenched, emboldened use of political slogans. And they've never seen political slogans used, and they're, they're sort of using the language of patriotism, but in a menacing way. They're not just saying USA or President Trump. They're saying it in a mean way, and they're pointing at Latino students. That's what people are seeing. Yeah, I think the context is everything. The tone and the words in and of themselves are kind of innocuous. But you have to look at how it was said, where it was said, when it was said, the tone. That is the tell as to what the underlying intent is. Obviously, somebody took it the wrong way. Now, whether they were super sensitive or not, I'm not sure. But my guess is, as Jill was saying, with the testosterone-laid atmosphere of a high school football game, it wasn't done uh, as a cheer for their own side, but a taunt for the other side. But again, you have to look at the context. It's really interesting how the symbols and words of patriotism have been embraced by the far right and how they've been used. And I've talked to people who represent more the opposite side of that, the progressive left, and and they talk about trying to bring those words and symbols back, that they're all of our words and symbols. An interesting follow-up to this, and I, I haven't written so much about this because I don't normally cover Orange County, but there was a a firestorm over the principal who complained about these issues at the game. And his critics say that he may have exaggerated what was going on in the stands or that someone told him that it was even worse than it was. And he took it on faith and reported it. And he posted on his Facebook. But this guy has received death threats. He's had to take down his Facebook page. He's kind of gone into hiding And maybe he didn't handle the situation perfectly, but I think the reaction against him is astonishing, actually. Well, that actually goes to what we've been talking about. Whatever the bona fides of the underlying complaint are, it's the reaction that is uncivil, that is threatening, that is mean and nasty, which like grown-up bullying. So somehow, if you think if you've been wronged, if you are, again, the victim, you are entitled to become nasty and obnoxious and irritating and threaten people because that's just straightening out the universe. I don't know, Jill. Were schools caught by surprise? Well, they've never seen this kind of political bullying before. So, yeah. Yeah, and I must say, because uh, I and know this is David Lehrer. In my years at the end of Defamation League, we did train tens of thousands of teachers. Well, I was going to say consciousness raising was sort of yeah, a and job. diversity training, a, a world of difference was the program all over the country. We found that over time it became less necessary because there was this increased diversity in schools, this increased tolerance, and kids, and most of the studies show kids were getting along very well, let's say through the late 90s into the aughts and probably through the Obama administration. And to the extent that we've regressed, I think this is probably some evidence of that. And it's the notion that, again, we talked about earlier, that people who are nasty are feeling empowered. 
and who are angry and who feel as victims. So if he can do it, why can't I? Right. Now, the issues that in a way that you that you've written about bullying, blaming, a feeling of victimization on the part of the perpetrator. Any thoughts on how this plays into the situation of Supreme Court Justice nominee Kavanaugh and his accuser who says he sexually assaulted her at a party when he was 17 and she was 15. Now, Kavanaugh denies the allegation. And I don't think it's too far a stretch to bring this conversation a little bit into that. Did you see his Trump this? Sorry, did you yeah. see his tweet on Friday yes. morning? Yes, that is uh, the way he operates. He's the victim so he can get nasty. It's so predictable. It's so him. It's so awful because it sets an example that, you know, you're angry, lash out, blame somebody else, which is exactly how I am. Instead of looking at the bona fides of whatever the of the woman's complaint and examine it and let's see, well, let's determine the truth, which is what his story was for three or four days, which was so unlike him. It's a, a case where his, I think, where his advisors told him to do one thing and then he just couldn't help himself. Right. I mean, this has to play out in schools, right? There's an article in the Times about how students, high school students, middle school students, are processing both the accusations against Brett Kavanaugh, but also the way the way it's being handled politically, you know, in Congress and by the White House. Jill, how do you see this playing out in schools since you write about schools? Well, I just can't imagine what it's like to be a young female high school student and to be seeing on the Internet people immediately believing the man and not even waiting to hear your story. I, I can't imagine it, it feels very good to be a 15-year-old young woman in high school right now. Well, and, and you have to wonder, how would these allegations have been treated if the 17-year-old person in this tale were a black male, or if this involved a cross-burning incident rather than a sexual assault? It seems like, and tell me if you disagree, there's a certain privilege of difference here that is assumed because I guess Brett Kavanaugh was a, um, a white student at a private school, uh, a certain boys will be boys thing, and therefore it's okay, when one could argue that people with that kind of privilege maybe should behave better? I don't know. Well, I mean, I think everything's encapsulated in the response of Orrin Hatch when he said, I don't believe her. And he hasn't seen the evidence. He hasn't heard her testify. But he has no compunction about reaching a conclusion based on what? I don't know. And that's the message I think Jill is referring to, which is just, you know, nasty. Well, Orrin Hatch, of course, was a senator at the time of the Anita right. Hill hearings. And I don't think he covered himself with glory on that occasion either. No, and they're replaying some of those hearings. They're fairly chilling as to the manner in which she was treated by these uh, uh, by the senators at the time, Republicans and some Democrats. Right, pretty much an all-white male panel. Yeah, it was panel. Uh, awful. We may get a replay in this coming week. So, Jill, I know that you did spend a year working as a teacher, and you did not teach social science. You taught algebra, as I seem to recall. But if you were a social science teacher, what would be the way that you would handle this? Wow. <laughs> because you'd have to think about it, I would it, get right? some advice from someone. The thing is, I, I imagine that students are raising the questions themselves. They're not even waiting for the teachers to ask the questions because how can you not be 15, 16, 17 and not wondering what the heck is going on? David, if you were a teacher, how would you bring this up? Or if a student said, what's going on here, what would you say? It's almost like the Passover question here. Yeah, I think the issue is really the process. Somebody makes a serious allegation, which may or may not be true, we don't know. But as a matter of 
process, you have to investigate it, which means you have to listen to the claim, the assertion, you have to listen to the defense. This is, as far as I'm concerned, the most mind-boggling notion that you're not even going to bother to subpoena or interview the witness who was there, the third person who was there. You have to teach that there is a process to determining truth, and it's logic, it's reason, it's investigation, it's data. That has all been shredded by this president who doesn't care about logic, doesn't care about reason, doesn't care about data, and that's what's just the awful example he has set on issue after issue after issue. David, how would you address as a high school teacher when the issue of bringing in objections at the 11th hour? Why weren't these issues raised earlier in the process? Why are you bringing them to me just before we're because about to I think uh, the, I used to handle complaints. People who'd come in who wanted to be anonymous when at the end of defamation, alleging discrimination. Literally, the paramount interest is respect for the person who's making the complaint. And if they ask for anonymity, because she knew, I imagine she knew full well what the fallout would be and the death threats and the harassment. Well, it that turns was, out she was right. Was, she was right. So if she said, please keep it anonymous, then I think the congresswoman who got the uh, complaint and Senator Feinstein had to respect that. And when the woman came and decided, okay, I'm ready to go public now, that's what happened. Now, whether there was a week or two gap or whether Feinstein should have responded quicker, it's actually quite immaterial now because the evidence is there. Go investigate. And what uh, I can't imagine what the rush is since the Republican Senate kept the seat empty for over a year on the Merrick Garland nomination, all of a sudden the few days or a week or two weeks to three weeks is suddenly absolutely critical. They didn't care, didn't give a hoot about an eight-person Supreme Court for over a year. All of a sudden it's urgent. It's just absurd. Let's return one more time to where we started, which was this new study that found that districts, areas in Virginia where Trump had won, saw an increase of bullying in middle schools. And in fact, there was a little bit of a decline in bullying in districts in areas that Hillary Clinton got the majority of the vote. David Lehrer, any final thoughts about this topic? Yeah, I think this could be a very important kind of seminal study because most of the reports so far about hate crimes, about attitudes on race relations and diversity haven't yet caught up with the impact of Trump after one year in office, a year and a half, almost two years in office. And this may be the first one that really shows that there is an impact, that it is seeping down, that it, the, the trickle down, if you will, of bigotry and intolerance and incivility uh, is having an effect. Uh, and to that extent, I think this could be a very kind of first shot over the bow saying, wake up, folks. The Trump effect is real and it's not pretty. Well, and politics, again, matter, voting matters. I mean, there was a talk of an Obama effect, right, where having a, a black man in the White House could have effects towards tolerance and diversity, and, and arguably it did, but there was also a reaction I mean, to that. There was a reaction, but the fact is most studies show that, interestingly, the tolerance level peaked in early 2009, and then people started to fetch and complain. But the reality is, when you did those polls, there there distinctions to be drawn in those polls. If you ask people their notion of the global race relations in the United States, inevitably, invariably, people were complaining, oh, it's not so good. If you ask them what were race relations like in their community, positive attitudes went up and up and up during the course of the Obama administration. So there was absolutely no doubt that during the course of the Obama administration, tolerance levels went up, compatibility went up, people got along a lot better. Now, 
you know, all bets are off. And Jill, what do schools do with this information? You know, where do we go from here in terms of either the research or in terms of what people in schools do with it? You know, I was just thinking how glad I am that you connected the Kavanaugh debate to the school bullying debate. And teachers are understandably unprepared to deal with this new politicized bullying. But I'm thinking that this is an opportunity to make it a teachable moment and teach kids to listen to one another and respect differences of opinions and have a robust discussion. I, I, maybe something good can come from this. Well, that's an optimistic view, and we'll put our tickets there for the moment. My guests have been David Lehrer. He's the president of Community Advocates. It's a Los Angeles-based human relations organization. He was the longtime director of the local branch of the Anti-Defamation League. And you can Google, by the way, Community Advocates or David Lehrer, L-E-H-R-E-R, to read his many interesting essays. And the voice you just heard was Jill Barche. She's a contributing editor to the Heckinger Report, which covers innovation and inequality in education. So Heckinger Report, well worth going to that website as well. For Deadline LA, I'm Howard Bloom. I want to thank Mike Heflin, our engineer, for recording us today. And most of all, I want to thank you for listening. Good fences don't always make good neighbors, but they do make for great comedy. In this new play directed by Jason Alexander of Seinfeld fame, an attorney on the rise and his very pregnant wife couldn't feel more welcomed by their new neighbors. But when a friendly disagreement about the lay of the land escalates into a backyard brawl, cultures collide and mudslinging ensues. Literally. Featuring Christian Barrias, Bruce Davison, Francis Fisher, and Jessica Meraz, Native Gardens runs September 5th through the 30th at Pasadena Playhouse. For further information and tickets, please visit PasadenaPlayhouse.org or KPFK.org. That's Native Gardens at Pasadena Playhouse running September 5th through September 30th. This is KPFK 90.7 Los Angeles, 98.7 FM Santa Barbara, worldwide on kpfk.org, Southern California's original public radio station, hitting the airwaves since 1959. Publicly funded and made possible by you, the listener. Then you're gay, don't pretend that you're straight You could be who you are any day of the week You are unlike the others, so strong and unique We're all with you, 